music, news, interviews, live events, and more. Welcome to the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Hey, it's Matt Pinfield. Welcome to the Hivecast. And I'm here with Mark Spitz. Mark is, of course, a playwright. He's an author and a biographer. And you've seen his writing uh, in so many magazines over the years. There may be too many to mention. You were also involved as one of the editors of Spin for a while, weren't you, Mark? I was a senior writer there. I was never an editor. But, um, but yeah, I was at Spin from 97 to 2006, so almost 10 years. Amazing. Yeah. And then we used to run around New York City and just misbehave. And Do you remember how we met? I don't know. No, I don't. Can you, can you tell I, me? Was it? I think it was through Kari. Was it through Kari? Yeah, your ex-girlfriend from college introduced us. She yeah. was like she my went... makeup person at MTV2 right. when it was M2. And that's how we first met. Was it in a bar? Was it at did you, was it at like bar 13 maybe? It was some bar. It yeah. was definitely as as the memory of those bar names kind of disappears. <laughs> I mean, certain places we know, Brownies which became Hi-Fi that we Bra- both loved. Yeah, I remember seeing you a around there and and um you interviewed me for your green day book there in brownies right right yeah, yeah we got very drunk or i did <laughs> i think we both did yeah um you know i'll admit hey everybody has a history and uh as long as <laughs> as long as you keep being productive right but we're, mark so you know total, i'm totally sober right now we're both yeah, drinking iced coffee yeah we are we're absolutely 100 percent sober um tell, let's talk about some of the books that you wrote but let's start with how did you get involved in writing in the first place, and, and when you started working in the magazines, what, what was the thing? What was the catalyst? Was it your love for music as a kid growing up? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's weird that I came to be sort of um, associated with Spin and at Spin for such a long time because it was really that magazine when it first came out in 1985. And I read Rolling Stone and I read Cream, and it, some of it spoke to me and some of it didn't. Some of it seemed like if I had an older brother, that would be like his thing, you know? And Spin seemed like the the first magazine where, like, I kind of didn't know where it came from, but like I wanted to be there wherever it was and like hang out with those guys, whether it was like John Leland or Legs McNeil or Bones Malone, who I didn't even know who that was, you know, but it just seemed like they knew what was going on. And it was also around the time where they were writing about bands like Sonic Youth and REM and Replacements and kind of like all the bands that I guess Michael Azerod ended up writing about in, in his book. Um, like it was that period. And it just seemed so cool. I guess it was like the beginning of kind of like nerd cool, you know, where it was like okay to like wear glasses and maybe still be a virgin and (laughs) and and still be cool you know still identify yourself as like a a cool person with with good taste so it was around that time and then i I, you know i grew up on long island so i started going into the city and you probably remember uh record stores yes very much so (laughs) i spent a lot of time in them do you remember speaking of nerd uh, do you remember when tower records had this the 45 rack like the singles rack along the wall yeah on 44 on 4th and broadway like lower broadway yeah yeah and um, so I would like I would start collecting vinyl and it just seemed it, I guess together they sort of s- s- swirled around in my head and created some kind of like I always wanted to write. I didn't know that I wanted to write about music. And I don't know if you were ever in bands. Yeah, I was, of course. Yeah. From the I, time I was like 14. See, I never <laughs> yeah. I just was not blessed with with, you know, any ability as a musician, but I still had that feeling. So it still had to come out somehow. So I was either going to be like a DJ or a music journalist or, you know, God forbid, working in the, like running a label or something like, yeah. you know, and I just, I kind of like. I or doing the high fidelity thing, working in a record store. Right, or, or owning or, <laughs> or being a clerk in a record store, which I was also. Yeah. Um, and so it just sort of combined into like, okay, well, this is the, this is the pursuit. And I really um, locked out in terms of, of finally getting to spin itself. Um, that was just being in the right place at the right time, getting a, someone had left and they, they didn't really know what new media was going to be at the time if you're i mean it's hard to think about it now because it's everything yes of course it is like this podcast that people are listening right, to sure us but in 19, but back in then, 1997 it's like oh well we'll just we'll take a chance you know we'll bring someone in and generate content and i think i was like sort of a proto music blogger you know i mean for spin online when literally you had to be an aol subscriber to get it and you know remember those days i remember i'm still an aol subscriber. hey i i remember first doing like an online, like, you know, basically stump mat show called Take It to the Mat on M- for MTV.com back then. <laughs> when there was no graphics, you know what I mean? All there was was words and people throwing questions at me and me answering them, like, over a one-hour period. So it's, it seems so primitive now, doesn't it? I mean, it, it was primitive, but it, it was exciting. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it was like, it's seriously mind-blowing to me when I think about how little the difference between something like that and something like what Huffington does 
Yeah. Because I basically would, would aggregate news stories from Billboard and people who actually reported it and like filter it through my sort of writing sensibility so it came out with the spin sort of attitude. Yeah. You know, I mean, I stole information basically and did uh, eventually started doing it. It was, you know, it was like around the time that the bands that I grew up listening to, because I was like a WLIR kid. Yeah, I don't know. which is an alt rock yeah. station in Long Island. It was great. I mean, you know, and it became DRE. So by the '90s, like some of these bands were maybe downsizing a little bit in terms of their popularity, and they were available. Whereas, like, I would never be able to get to the Cure or the B52s or the Psychedelic Furs when I was in high school, but they would start like maybe getting passed over by Rolling Stone in terms of features. But like, we were so hungry for content that like literally I could get in the room with the Jesus Mary Chain. Yeah. In 1997, you know, because like and, and there was somewhere to put it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. now, it's like second nature now. It's like so like you can't even explain it. Like I sound like a, a man for like I sound like Austin Powers now talking. about Yeah. It. But, but like I was the guy I was that guy with the microphone. There was no word for it. It wasn't called a blog. It wasn't even called like it wasn't even called content. It was just like like a flying blind, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was it was a wild west. Yeah. So that's how I got in. <laughs> yeah. That's how I got in to the business. And then I was sort of poached by the magazine. How marginalized the website was, if you can picture the spin offices circa 1997-1998, we were like that scene in Animal House where they're pledging to the frat before they go to the Deltas. Yeah. And they, and they keep, keep bringing, bringing the one the guy back room. to the couch. <laughs> <laughs> They keep introducing it to the same to up, people. I kept wanting to go upstairs uh, to talk to the editors yeah. and get like my, you know, a cover story or, or yeah. something and get, you know, get read because I didn't, I was convinced no one was reading us, you know. It turned out that the people who were reading it originally were really sort of in-house. They would circulate what I was writing among all the editors as a little morning, like this is the news, you know, briefing um, to, I guess, stimulate potential concepts for the, for the magazine, you know, keep it sort of... Uh, in-house, and, and that's how I got kind of noticed and, and eventually started writing a print column, like a monthly gossip column. Like, can you yeah. imagine that? Like a yeah. monthly gossip column, like yeah. where I was afraid of getting scooped. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, and called, it's monthly, of course, yeah. like, and you look at things today and everything is out. Imme- news is immediate, you know? And the thing that made that started me writing features and sort of, I guess, put me on the map in terms of I got an agent out of it, and then I ended up getting a, a book deal, which was, we got The Neutron Bomb, which was my first book with uh, Brendan Mullen. Was this, uh, you know, in, in also in 1998, 1999, Guns N' Roses had kind of disappeared. If you remember, I, I, you know, they, now they're they're touring incessantly, and it's it, they put finally put out the Chinese Democracy album. But like literally, it was they were the biggest band in the world, and then there was nothing. There was silence, you know, for like five six years. And so I did that like um, what the world needs now is Axl Rose cover, where it sort of it was an oral history of. Um, Guns N' Roses, and then it was sort of like doing an in-depth reporting about what the album, the mystery album, sounded like. And now, the people that let me ask you this, Mark, the, I can't remember. I remember the article very well, but not the fact whether was it taken from other older interviews, and did you kind of bring it to a no, timeline? no, no, it was, or was it, it was, all people? Oh, it was, other oh, it was than all Axel? new. Yeah, I had some reporters, I, but I did. You know, I interviewed Slash myself. I did. I interviewed um, Duff myself, and you know, like the, the old band at Tom Zutote, who who signed them, yeah. and um, went to his office and interviewed him. But yeah, I, I was my first, I was green, you know, it was yeah. my first story. And um, so I like Alan Light, who was the editor in chief at, at Spin at the time, and um, and Rob Levine, who, who's over at, I guess, Billboard now. Um, it's amazing how many people have passed through there. But like, um, he, they were the editors, and they definitely ran some cover for me in terms of kind of getting it to, to print. But then when that came out, like that was like, one of the short of like, please kill me, like there hadn't been really that sort of oral history trope in the culture yet yeah you know like I mean, that I, and that book please kill me is great because of the way ladies mcneil yeah. had written it and gotten everybody and going through these timelines and chapters that were kind of the common thread right. through each but thing. that was a book i'm tar- talking about in terms of the ma- magazine articles yeah. like now you see a lots of oral histories you know there's one of the sopranos in the new issue of, of vanity fair or a recent issue of vanity fair and 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 um you know, it's it's a bit more commonplace again like the the blogging that i did and I, i'm not saying that i'm not like, coming here saying i'm like some pioneer or anything like that like we honestly like i didn't i just wanted to be off the street you know yeah. i just wanted to be <laughs> not copying drugs all day and like waiting for the phone to ring and, yeah you know i wanted to, to be busy because i i had this i had ideas you know and i had I had the skill but like you need the the luck and the timing to have someone give you a chance you know put you in the ring and 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 so the guns and roses thing led to um 
to the neutron bomb. To the neutron bomb, because now I was the oral history guy, and I was the guy. I was the you know a lot of the Guns N' Roses story is a Los Angeles story. Right. And so you went out and then did the L.A. Hardcore book. Yeah. And tell me about that, because you'd have to find people that were involved in the scene when the germs were on and, and everyone else. Tell me, what were some of the what were some of the best parts of doing that? What were some of the hardest things okay. about writing well, that book? Okay, well, I got the book deal about six months to a year before even meeting Brendan Mullen. Brendan Mullen is this legendary L.A. punk figure. He founded The Mask, which was the first sort of underground club where like x and the germs got their first sort of shows and and it was um off hollywood boulevard and it's like it's like the west coast cbgbs or yeah so you know uh, just for those people listening if you heard uh, on the most recent chili peppers album brendan's death song it's actually written about brendan brendan was a friend of theirs and that was the first place that chili peppers i think ever played no he brendan um went legit after the mask and was a booker at this place called club lingerie oh and that's where they did and that's first where the chili gig. peppers and fishbone and probably guns and roses like yeah. got their first gig so he became i think he helped johnny depp start the viper room i mean he became this like serious rock and roll culture guy and a great dj and yeah. just a beautiful person you know i mean um like we became really close you know brendan passed away about uh two years ago and um so I went out on the train because uh, because I was afraid of flying at the time. <laughs> Took the yeah. train to L.A. and was just so uh, desperate for companionship. By the time I arrived there three days later, <laughs> that I would have been best friends with whoever met me at the station. But you know, we hit it off. We were both Libras, if that means anything. And and so, what basically, Brendan was the cred. You know, and Brendan, I, my agent, and 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 I was fine with it because I was just lucky. I'm like, oh, I got I get a book deal, but like my agent at the time didn't want to give up fifty percent, you know, because um, to this sort of unknown quantity. But the thing is that Brendan was th there was no doing that book without at least someone like him, you know, because yeah. he he was still uh, and remained up until his death like such a like he was like, you know, Christopher Walken is like the king of New York, yeah, you know? like Brendan <laughs> was like the king of Hollywood, and knew how to find not just the sort of still working above ground guys like maybe like Peter Case from the Plimsolls or Billy Zoom from X, but like even like the sort of there's this guy Rick Wilder from this band called the Berlin Brats that we had to track down and he was just like this like wayward rock and roll Hollywood lizard character and like we would literally sit outside of the place where he was like rumored to be holed up, like waiting to like get an interview with him. And I, I didn't know even know why he was important because I'd never heard of the Berlin Brats. You know what I mean? Like I was like basically applying my ear for dialogue and learning as I went along. And I got yeah. like the crash, the one-on-one course in, in LA punk. And I could probably teach a class on it now. And so people do teach classes on neutron bomb now. What about Pat Smear and guys like that? Yeah. Pat Smear um, was in the Foo Fighters at the time. I guess he's back in the Foo Fighters now. Yes. And, um, and so the, the, it became like, you know, it, it was Darby crash was like, I guess if you're familiar with please kill me, he's sort of like what, Iggy was to please kill me in terms of that figure that, who's like sort of ties everyone together. Somehow. Yeah, the germs guy, like ground zero almost, yeah. you know. And uh, they they had not reunited at the time, the germs, and they'd not made that film yet, obviously. And it was he was still sort of like this cult figure. I think he was beloved by a certain, you know, uh, subculture of like skater kids and hardcore kids, you know, but, but people weren't like giving themselves germs burns and you wouldn't see like, you know. Like I, I later did like a piece on the germs for the New York Times and that wouldn't have happened you know around that time like, it, like there had to be someone to sort of bring it to the level that Please Kill Me brought New York because Please, Legs and, and, and Jillian McCain his co-writer completely ignored the West Coast they yeah. ignored San Francisco and they ignored Los Angeles because this is where they were more familiar is that why you think so? I think that if, or they just thought that it I would think make they ignored it... England too I mean I think the, you get this provincial attitude you know where, where, where did punk start? yeah you know, how can you answer that question? Like, yeah. you know, it's like... I mean, a lot of people believe it starts with the dolls or... And some people say it starts with the Stooges, you know? Right, Detroit. and we said it started with the doors. I and mean, yeah. we were like, okay, <laughs> so where does... I mean, that's kind of where... Is that what you said in the book? We, you, that's you, exactly where the book starts, yeah. where my book starts, yeah. Yeah. But Brendan and my book, yeah. Now, what about you? And what was the next book? Was the next book the Green Day book? No, the next book was a, a novel called How Soon Is Never. Which is based, uh, obviously, the title is from How Soon Is Now. It's for Love of the Smiths. Tell yes, me. yeah. Um, Tell me about the, the premise of the book. Let everyone know about it. Well, it's, it's interesting. It's a novel. It's a, it's a novel, but it's sort of like it's sort of like a, you know, they say your first novel is basically autobiographical, and that's just kind of the way it goes, because you've been spending all this time 
banking material and stories and stuff like that. So it all comes out in the first book. And so uh, and the second book, if you're any good, you, you know, you use your imagination and you, you actually write. You know? <laughs> uh, but so, as Joe's what a Smith fan you were then. As right. A kid. It, was, it was 1999. And this is based on a real event where uh, this journalist, uh, Victoria de Silverio, who was at Spin, and I pitched a story to our editor, who was Alan Light at the time, uh, about physically going out and getting all four members of the Smiths to sign a paper pledging that they would reunite and what would happen along the way. You know, and this really happened. Like, we were like both about to turn 30, and we were both just WLIR kids because she was from, I guess, Philadelphia, and you could pick up the signal out there. So we both, and I was from New York, so we both grew up on the same. DJs in the same station and um, and the Smiths were I guess one of the big four you know it was Depeche it was the Smiths it was um, The Cure The Cure and it was uh, you could argue for New Order or maybe Susie you know in terms yeah. of like the big yeah. superstar LAR bands and so we both we both were like well at least we'll get to meet the Smiths you know because um, now if you think about it and this is I guess a recurring theme in our conversation matt is that like <laughs> every band has reunited yeah you know with but, the exception of the smiths with the exception of the smiths ironically but but go back to 1999 <laughs> and that like there, there was no coachella you know there was no who's going to reunite this year culture yeah like you know? like the jesus of mary chain one year or right or, or big audio dynamite or, or whoever this year is big what is it at the drive-in or, yeah. or whatever this big reunion is of uh, um so things like Lala that was in. just sort of taking root in the culture. Yeah. And I still when I think about the fact that the Smiths are still the only holdouts, like literally the only holdouts. Like There's every, one other like but, pavement got back yeah. together. The Pixies got like bands yeah. you never thought you would see. But even on the earlier front, I think if Joe Strummer had lived the clash, would have gotten back together. Oh yeah, I, I think they they were about to. They were right? about to. Yeah. And but there's one band other than the Smiths who were actually Equally important to me, years a few years earlier, was the Jam. I don't think they'll ever get back together. Well, but I will two, say, right, Foxton did, and right? Paul Weller yeah. did. You know, but you know, every time I ask Paul about it, I'm like, Paul, you got back together because Bruce Foxton's wife died, and you decided, you know, and you lost your dad, John Weller. So, you know, you thought, you know what I mean? That made you think about your, you know, your youth. But he just said he's not into nostalgia and won't do it. But I, I hope at some point he changes his mind. You never know. <laughs> but, would they be? Would, but, but the Jam were like, like such a leaping power trio you would yeah. they would have to like cut the same sort of young jumping in the air figure you know like they're they're and i guess the smiths are kind of the same way where it's just like if you see these sort of middle-aged wealthy landowners out there you know, <laughs> singing about rain and hair and you know unrequited lust it's just i don't know i mean it's i think it's sort of perfect that they didn't and i guess the jam is definitely like a, another Example of that. Example of that. So anyway, so so we ended up actually literally meeting Mike Joyce and Andy Rourke, and and I sat down with Johnny Marr, and I later got to interview Morrissey after the book came out, and I actually talked to him about the book. What did um, he say about it? I want to get his reaction because having oh interviewed God, him I, and <laughs> having I, I once had a meet and greet where you know l listeners to my radio station, which was like LAR on the Jersey Shore that I was music director and then program director of, we had a meet and greet for Morrissey, you know, backstage. Did he show up? Oh, yeah, he showed up and he was hilarious. I mean, you know, he was, take, as the English say, taking the piss out right. of everyone, but having fun with, with, with everyone. Uh, yeah, he's definitely one of the most difficult interviews I've ever done because um, you definitely have to have endurance. It's like you have to keep up with his intellect. You have to hold his attention. I think I intrigued him because of the book. He wouldn't acknowledge that he'd read it. He said that he had a Scottish aunt who'd read it. Quote, unquote. <laughs> Scottish aunt, <laughs> which uh, do you believe <laughs> Well, do you yeah, know the which, which means basically, I think it means he has read it. I, well, yeah, but yeah. he said he wouldn't tell me what he thought of it because he didn't want it. It would be bad for me. And that's that's quoting him. Uh, he didn't want it to go to my head, which I'm assuming I wouldn't even be in the room interviewing him if he didn't like it. Yeah. Because he just wouldn't, you know. And so he'd already agreed to do the cover for Spin. This was in the You Are the Quarry was about to come out. Uh, so it was 2003, 2004. Yeah. And the book came out in 2003. So um He'd, he would have had ample time for it to be on his radar. He said people had told him about it. And I used some of the um, actual interviews with Mar and Joyce and Rourke. Uh, and Rourke lives here now. He's like at, always around like, town. Like um, as inspiration. You yeah. know, I mean, it's fictionalized. Yeah. You know, um, so, you, but, so you didn't use the – you just took some of the stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I took the sort of uh, sentiment of it. You know, obviously it says a novel on the, on the – 
but like most of that actually did go down. It just didn't go down exactly like that necessarily. Did you have to try? Did you travel to the UK to do Johnny Marr and do Mike Joyce? Or no, did you Johnny Marr. Johnny Marr was here um, for I think it was CMJ. He just started that band uh, Healers, and he was playing like club shows. And yeah, stuff. And exactly. So he played was, Bowery yeah. Borum here yeah. in New York City. And Morrissey had just sort of started doing live shows again, but he was not because we went out to DC. And he stood us up. We took the train all the way out to D.C. and went to, like, the Four Seasons Hotel and, like, waited downstairs for him. And he never, you know, he's famous for being, you know, uh, elusive sometimes, you know, or canceling shows yeah. or, or being, you know, he's hard to, to pin down. I, I flew out to L.A. with it, hoping that he would even show up. I interviewed him in the, in the bungalows at the Beverly Hills Hotel where he, it was his, you know, suggestion. You know, one of my favorite stories, I have to tell you this, is that uh, – but you know, before Jerry uh, Finn passed away, who worked on Morrissey with some records, right, right. there's a famous story about Morrissey going to his house for like a picnic. He actually shows up there, and you know, other artists, you know, how they'll be a little modest if you're playing their music. They'll be kind of like, not that they're not appreciating it, but they're sometimes they're a little uncomfortable. Morrissey, on the other hand, walks in and goes, "What's this shit you have on? Put on my new album." <laughs> <laughs> to the, to he, well, that's the album he actually did with Jerry Finn. Yeah, but I think that's the funniest story. I love him for that. You got to appreciate that kind of. You know that personality. No, he. Is. No, he. That's you're absolutely right, Matt. He he definitely wears his iconic stature very well. You know, he he walks into a room and he, he knows that he's he knows what he means to people in the same way that like maybe David Bowie knows what he means to people or or um, even like a like an old New York Yankee or some you know someone like Yogi Berra or some you know what I'm saying where yeah. it's just like you know it's they're almost holy that iconic know? thing. Yeah. I mean, and look at that incredible following he has in Mexico, which is just like. A whole nother yeah. lifetime. So, so anyway, so so that became the book, and it was like, you know, so in order to tell the story of like, so the, the theme of the book is um, life would be, my life would has gone off the rails, and it would be better, I could get my innocence back if I could only reunite the Smiths. You know, yeah. that's, I, I use my alter ego, which is this guy, Joe Green, who's yeah. like the, this music journalist, and he's the narrator of the book. And um, and Vicky is called Mickey in the book. <laughs> you know, you're it's not my inspired first novel. It's by like mean not... Joe Green, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> my name is Mark Spitz, and everyone's like, "Is the Mark Spitz the swimmer?" And I've like my whole life, it's like, no. And then you feel like they're disappointed a little bit. So, and so it's Mean Joe Green. Mean so you Joe Green right, that's right. really I, that's great. Um, and so next was the Green Day book. Uh, so, right? No, there was one. Uh, my I made a stab at like an actual, you know, another novel. At between that and was sort of not like a hit but uh, but you know some people like it it's called uh, too much too late and that sort of was i guess semi-inspired by like guided by voices like their myth it's kind of like about a a middle-aged midwestern guy who's already in his 40s kind of who who gets and again like this was before like the youtube stars you know like youtube didn't exist you know or it had maybe just started but he gets discovered on you know on, a, on the web and becomes like a superstar, you know, like a teenage messiah or yeah. something and just kind of loses his, his mind. And that was almost his, in a Ziggy sort of way. Yeah. A middle-aged Midwestern Ziggy stardust. <laughs> uh, <laughs> why it's not a massive bestseller. I don't know. Um, and then after that was green day. This is the hive cast with Matt Pinfield. Now, when you it came time to do the green day book, yeah. was the band involved in any way? Yeah, I mean, they there was talk of it being an authorized, like I would embed with their traveling campaign and and interview them, and and they they ended up being less of that, but they did vet the book and they did help a lot in terms of setting up interviews and with 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 family and other people around the band, and so it was like I would call it like I would qualify it as like I cooperated with, but not authorized. Yeah. Um, well, I love the title of the book too. I mean, the fact that it was called Nobody Likes You, Inside the Turbulent Lifetimes and Music of Green Day. Yeah, that's from, what, what song is that from? That's from the Homecoming song, the the, the, the big suite at the end yeah. of American Idiot. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's an interesting story because you think about that band. They started as DIY as anybody else in the world and just loved being out on the road and have become... Did you ever go to Gilman back in the day? Had you been there? I had never been to Gilman before. It was too. It was a little bit too late by the time I started yeah. going to San Francisco. Uh, they were already they'd already blown up at that point, and Rancid were out on the road. Everybody was kind of right. out on the road at that time. Missed Op Ivy. Yeah, Tim but, Tim Armstrong would start. He would call me on my cell phone at weird. I'd be like literally at the dog run in Union Square with my dogs, and I would get like a phone call from Tim who just wanted to like 
chat, you know, and like he he's great, like really, you know, and oh, yeah, he ended is. Up giving me like a super in-depth, like really valuable interview about Op Ivy and, and the early days of Green Day and Rancid and Punk kind of blowing up. And, and the whole Gilman Street scene. Whole, like weird post Nirvana. You know, you remember those days. Yeah, oh, like, I surely do. And, Was there and, with all of it, yeah. you know? <laughs> Absolutely. But especially that period of time, it's, it, when you look back at it, it's amazing. But shifting from the Green Day book, the next book was the Bowie book. And, I, and you know, I know I've asked you this before when we when we talked about the Bowie biography. You knew that Bowie had, had so many books written about him over the years, but this was something that was a labor of love for you because I've obviously been a big Bowie fan, Yeah, you know, uh, all my life as well. So what was the thing that made you say, you know what, I, I think I'll have something more on my, on my own to say, a different perspective. And I know you went to England and investigated. You went to a lot of places. I went. I stood in front of the house where he was born. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like, you know, going to Jerusalem or something. <laughs> so tell me about about getting that and getting the deal for that book, too. Um, well, I had left Spin in 2006. They fired a bunch of people. It was like me and Klosterman. And... Well, it looks like both of you guys did okay. Yeah, he, he did a little better than me. Uh, but so, you know, I was like, okay, well, now I guess, um, you know, Blender and I ended up freelancing a little bit for Blender and I did a little like one piece for Rolling Stone on Christian Slater, just totally random. So I was just like, okay, I'm not like that. We all kind of saw the writing on the wall in terms of the there's a hole in the boat in terms of the industry and in terms of print publishing. And, you know, I was just like, okay, so professionally speaking, I need to do something big. Because you put down that advance, you know, that score, right? The publisher pays you a lot of money. It was my fourth or fifth book at the time, you know. You And also you kind of want to keep setting the bar, you know, like the Green Day did okay. And it, I think, it, you know, it, it was of a piece with Neutron Bomb in terms of like this sort of punk thing. So you, you want to kind of maybe find a bigger subject. So there was that natural sort of ambition thing like why you know that, that sort of why go to the moon because it's there thing like why do another book on david bowie people don't need it but he's still there you know and especially someone like bowie like never really stopped yeah being fascinating not you know? even now in his absence because yeah. he hasn't toured since and, and, and with all the coverage and all the examination and the yeah. people writing books literally on like the obscure unreleased remixes of the eno sessions in in uh, yeah 1979 in Sweden or wherever, you know, yeah. it's just like there was still room, you yeah. know, if I found a way to do it where like, A, it could be maybe a little amusing, irreverent, you know, like I, I have these interludes in there where I talk a bit, I just kind of pull the curtain back. Most biographers have to be really dry and approach their subjects like almost like anthropologists, you know nature show host you can't disturb you know so i was just like you know what i'm a fan i'm just gonna just gush and admit that i'm a fan but i'm still going to do the reporting you know and maybe they could live together in this book you know the sort of so there's like interludes throughout that like literally up, up until the last minute i was like debating with my editor at the time whether i would just take them all out and have it be a straight biography because it could have functioned as both i'm glad that you didn't though <laughs> you're, you're among you're among uh, that camp. There are yeah. other people who attack me for it. You know, like how dare he um, talk about dyeing his hair because he wanted to look like you know the serious moonlight Bowie. You know, in '83, it's like it has no place in a in a serious biography. And and I, it's it's kind of like it's almost so audacious that like I'm sort of glad I did it. You know, and and that it exists forever in a book where like you know I, I got to interview Dick Cavett and and old guys from the BBC and. You know, um, the Dick Cavett footage is still unbelievable. Oh my God! Yeah, you could tell that you know David was definitely um, he was quite wired at the time, and and Dick Cavett didn't know what to make of him at that point in time. People still didn't have the access to artists in that period of the seventies. He was there doing nineteen eighty four and Young Americans. Yeah, and you could see him almost inventing that. Yeah, that, like funky, um, coked out, like new disc. You could tell he he was listening to a lot of soul records, a lot of Philly soul, maybe like a little. Craft uh, work and kraut rock and stuff like that, and like you know, and Luther Vandross, of course, was singing back up yeah, on that right. Dick Cavett thing. Was it was, uh, Ava Cherry and Luther Vandross? Yeah, and that that amazing band, and he's just like he's just so it's just still like it's jaw dropping still. Yeah. So like even stuff like that in the YouTube era just fuels you through, and you and you you know, 
I got a, I mean, I talked to Angie for that book. You know, I talked and to And that was Angie's attitude when you interviewed her for the book. Because, you know, she's, there's been a lot of anger in the past. Angie, uh, I think, was a We're little. We're talking about Angie Bowie, Angie Bowie. David's first wife. She it was, was a muse for him in the early she days. She was a little weary. She, I think she was talked out about it. Um, she needed some convincing. She ultimately was very generous and, and very honest. And it was a. You know, it was an oddly emotional conversation. You know, I mean, she she's someone who was sort of left behind, you know, and uh, I don't know if she what what the status of their relationship is now, but like, you know, d- kind of missed out on a, a lot of, of her kid's life, you know. Um, and so I, it was like kind of like I felt a little guilty, which you, well, you'll come across those moments as a biographer, I think, where you're, you feel a little bit like you're you're ripping a scab off. You know? Yeah, you know, you're opening some old yeah. wounds, and, and it's a hard feeling to process. And you, and and I'm, you know, I'm definitely prone to that Jewish guilt. <laughs> so, so it's just like, oh man, like what a way to make a living, right? But, but like, you know, one of the things though that's so amazingly ironic, but very cool, is that their son Zoe Bowie, who was then Joey Bowie, right. who's now I guess Duncan, Duncan Jones. Duncan, yeah. Now he's Duncan Jones, um, and my friend Clint Mansell, you know, does all the soundtracks for the Darren Aronofsky films like mm. Pie, Requiem for a Dream. Did the stuff for Moon. He did the soundtrack for Moon, the scoring. But isn't it ironic that the first movie that people really hear about from Bowie's son is called Moon? When you think that Bowie's that's first a, hit was Space Odyssey, that's a really good movie too. Yeah, that it movie. is a great movie. I know. Uh, I know Sam a little bit. We have. I've met him a bunch of times. We have some <laughs> mutual friends, Sam Rockwell, and I thought he was great in it. Yeah, yeah. but I love the fact that the space themes, this the you know yes. the astronaut, the loneliness, you know, it comes. It came full circle from father to son. Right. I mean, you know. So. He was on the cover of Rolling Stone recently. Recently, and he was also with the Ziggy Stardust era, and and they're re-examining him on all the English magazines right, too. Like Ziggy Mojo is, Ziggy Q is forty years cut. old now. Yeah, it's, it's, and I actually I went out there and I st- stood on the spot. K- the K West, K West, yeah. and I bet the and there's no phone booth anymore. There is, but oh, it's, it's not still the there. same one. It's like a, it's like a <laughs> replace. It's like a, it's going to be. I think they they're making it some kind of official landmark. Um, they should. It's this little alley <laughs> in Soho for people who don't know where David shot the uh, iconic cover for the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and Spiders from Mars in '72, and supposedly he had the flu at the time or bad cold, but you know he. It was such a what a great album, a big big album for both of our lives. But I mean, I'm I'm asking you because I know uh, he's done, right? Like he's retired. well. Here's the thing: everybody's talking about. It. I think he's retired, although yeah. he's never he hasn't come out with a statement. But you know, he's raising his daughter, and you know, I, I just think that last tour there were a couple very scary moments for him. I'm not like, speaking for him, but I was you know, but as an observer. I would say that, you know, that thing when he got hit in the eye, which like at the end of a lollipop actually went into right, under photos his eye. Of it, yeah. it, it, that is one of the most frightening shots ever. You know, I don't know what kind his of... His eyes already screwed yeah. up. And what know. kind of moron would right. would throw that? And then um, and the other thing was his heart, you know, he had the heart attack or his right. heart scare. So, I mean, maybe he's just deciding he wants to enjoy these later years of his life, being a father, enjoying lower Manhattan where he lives and just... Laying low. I mean, he said he, the last thing I read that he said to people was, "I'm comfortable," which means he's got enough, enough money probably to live on for the rest of his life without, know, but, but, without working. But but I, and I I think you're probably right about that. But like my my thing at the time when I was writing the book, and it's ironic that it's been almost five years. Um, five years. Yeah, <laughs> five years we had to bring up. <laughs> Somebody um, just sent me like uh, their book. They wrote a book. Uh, you know, uh, it was Simon Felice wrote this book called Black Jesus, and he wrote in front of it to me. He said, "Matt, five years—that's all we got." So he quoted, right. did some Bowie quoting in there, which was cool. But you know, one quick thing to, that I wanted to bring up with you, Mark, that have you and you probably have seen this. I saw the pay stubs for that legendary show, one of my favorite live concerts. It was a bootleg as a kid, Santa Monica Civic Center, nineteen seventy-two, the Ziggy tour. Right, and Bowie only got seventy-five dollars for that gig, and I think Mick uh, Ronson. Woody Woodmancy and Trevor Boulder got fifty. I mean, it's, when you look back and you think about it, I'm sure, yes, it was worth more than seventy two, but it still seems so bizarre to me that they only How made much that much did money. Tony DeFreeze got. Yeah, I think uh, the main man guy took all the cash. He definitely. We know well, that, that was story. that was a cool thing too about that because, like, you know, um, and this kind of gets into what I'm doing now is that, like, you know, I just sold a, a memoir from from uh, about my time in Lower Manhattan in the '90s to DeCapo, and that's coming out next winter. It's called Poser. Yeah, um, <laughs> I want to hear about it. We misbehaved a lot in that period. But we so did, I'm... but then, but what I, you know, there's a long tradition. I mean, I'm sure you read the Patty Smith book. Yes. Um, so on the Bowie book was the first sort of window I got in terms of actually being in the room with these people and meeting these people. I'm talking about the the, the Max's Kansas City people and the yeah. factory people who were hired 
by Tony DeFries to, to to sort of talk up Bowie, almost like a, a whisper campaign, like a uh, in the in the early seventies, and to create this kind of entourage yes. that was around him because it was the people that were all involved right. in pork. Yeah, and yeah. and and it was like Cherry Vanilla and Jane County, Tony Zanetta, yeah. and, and uh, Lee Black Childers, yeah. and I interviewed all those guys. Yeah. You know, and they're still around. I mean, you'll see them, you know, here and there, and a lot of them still sort of are, are you know, sort of punks, you know, sort of outside of society, never really, you know. Yeah, they never they rejoined. Went they yeah. never went mainstream. <laughs> um, and then after reading the Patty Smith book, and obviously I love um, Forced Entry is the Jim Carroll book, and there's some really great kind of downtown Manhattan. Uh, stories, you know, through the underworld, you know, yeah. and the city is just so, so unrecognizable to, to me now. Some place, you know, especially the Lower East Side. It it it, it, it bums me out at times. I will, yeah. I will admit. I mean, listen, everything New York is known for evolving. Whether that's a good, nothing ever stops changing in New York City. I mean, there's yeah, it's some, the nature of the city, and it's yeah. good for it. Yeah. yeah, but and we should get out of the way as as middle aged. Gents, while, <laughs> that's right. Know. But I also say I miss some of the great venues, though. You know, right? I mean, of course, the Palladium, where I saw Paul Simonon of the Clash smashes bass, that's on the cover yes. of London Calling, is now a NYU gym dorm, and it's a um, Trader Joe's. Yeah. <laughs> so Crazy. what are you going to do? I saw people waiting in line to buy food instead of waiting I saw in line two to buy live tickets. Crew there. Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> what album was it? Move something. No, it was, they were they were like a special guest of Fishbone for some yeah. reason. It was like a Fishbone show. Was it like we want some? Yeah, want some, that song. <laughs> no, no, no it's so, like right. Or in was the it thick, na- right in the thick? What was the album that, that as nasty got, as they want to yeah, be? It was right in the middle of that. You, you and know. me so horny and the yeah, fuck shop exactly, and all yeah. that craziness. Yeah, they're great, man. It was like it was kind of punk rock, but um. So yeah, with with places like there, there's talk that Max Fish is is closing or moving, and and that was like the the sort of the hub for a certain like '90s indie rock kind of drug-addled downtown culture. So I thought it was time to maybe you know I'm I'm 42 years old. I've done six books. Um, I thought it was like I thought maybe I had one of those in me, and I've met a lot of people. The Patty Smith book. If you don't like Patty Smith, and my mother loved that book, she's never heard a Patty Smith song in her life. You know. But, you know, the, the people that whether it's Allen Ginsberg or Sam Shepard or, or um, Janis Joplin or the, Jimi Hendrix, like the people she bumped up against as she journeyed through through the city. I have a lot of those people in a lot of different pockets yeah. you know, of, of culture. So I thought, well, I'm not Patti Smith. I'm not famous in that way. Like I have I'm lucky enough to have people who, who read what I write. But like New York is that is, is the character. Yeah. New York is the story. The Lower East Side yeah. and the East Village. So that's kind of what I'm kind of hoping the book will do. And and I've I've done two drafts of it and I, and I did sell it and it is going to come out, but I do I'm working on the final draft now and hopefully it'll represent as they say. Yeah. You know? I think it will. Yeah. I'm looking forward to reading it. Um now you wrote a book about Mick Jagger recently, mm. which is called Jagger Rebel Rockstar. Yeah. Rambler, rogue. Now, and the thing is, I write I, the books like Jagger. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> moves like Jagger. <laughs> when I first saw that title, I was in complete disbelief that there was a song called "Moves Like Jagger." But I, it's I just a great want to say song. that I, yeah, I'm not dissing the song by any song. means. But when I saw it, yeah, you know, I'm not making. Yeah, but I, believe me, it's a huge hit. Yeah, and it's catchy. I just saw it and went, "Oh my god, somebody actually wrote a song called Moves Like Jagger," and you know, he, it's great for him because. Young people now know who he is as well. I mean, I think these young I think kids. Because my of daughter's Kesha, in, and because my, of Maroon Five, they do actually. Yeah, yeah, my daughter's like just turned twelve, you know, and so she now knows all about Mick Jagger and asked me to play her some Stone songs. What did you play her? I played her. I played her some of the primers at first, you know, Satisfaction, sure. of course, Start Me Up, you know, things like that. I played. Did she respond to it? She... I thought she thought it sounded cool. You know, I think she. I think she was just super curious because she's a huge pop fan. If you had to narrow it down, like what would be like the the two that you would save for, from a oh a Stones thing? Yeah. Oh man, you know there's so many that I love because I even love records that people don't like, like it's only rock and roll and things like I that. I love that record. I think it's a great album. Yeah. I mean, I, I love it. I mean, Black I understand. and Blue, it's only rock and roll and Goat's Head Soup. Yeah, uh, I'm getting the order mixed up, but yeah. like those were. If you you know you read interviews and it's like the Stones have lost it. The Stones like the first time they started saying the Stones have lost. Yeah, after Sticky Fingers, all those albums are exile. They're amazing. Yeah, you know it's like I guess it's like they'd raise the bar so high with Exile that. I mean, my favorite personally is probably Paint It Black. I mean, it's one of my favorite of singles, Mm -hmm. you know. And then there's album tracks, but I love I love so many Stone songs. It's almost like it's like asking anybody. 
who's kids, who's your favorite. There's right. so many things, and you love different things about all of them. And I'm sure that's how they feel about their music. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I came to it. I, the the two that are always going to be closest to my heart are Emotional Rescue and Tattoo You, because that's when I came in. Yeah. Maybe some girls. You know? And how wild is it, is it when you think about it that records like Emotional Rescue and Tattoo You were a lot of things that were ideas that they'd already had and they, were, they came back to. You know yeah, what I mean? When they say that about the Stones a lot, like uh, like it's it's almost like they're trying to weirdly sort of um, disqualify the 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 output. You know, saying they have a vault. You're talking about a band that has unlimited studio time. Yeah, but I mean, who okay. cares? I'm like you. Who cares about it if they go back and yeah, but, and re- resurrect a song yeah. that becomes Start Start Me Up because right, exactly. it's a great right. song. Right. I mean, look at the Doors. They they wrote Hello I Love You was on their first demo. They didn't even own an organ yet. Ray Manzarek. In 1965, there was a demo of Hello I Love You that didn't come out yeah, till the third it's their, album. It's their music. It's not like yeah. they're plundering. Um, <laughs> like what is that weird rock snob thing where it has to be in the moment? Yeah. Like they had to have written this song last year for it to be. <laughs> like why not? listen to their archives and yeah you know? and i will admit you know when i was a teen and i first heard start me up i like immediately loved it and went is it what, what's what old stone album is what old stones album is this on this is a great tune because it felt like a stones classic at that very first moment when you heard it. the problem with the jagger book ultimately and i think that it, it it's coming out in paperback in september and you know there's it, it got a lot of nice reviews and, and it got a lot of attention um i think the problem with it ultimately is that People held it up against life. You yeah, know? I mean, and I think, well, you remember, you and I, I was leaving the radio station, you know, 1019 on Hudson Street yeah. here in the city, walking up the street. You were walking your dogs. <laughs> and, you know, I stopped you, you and your girlfriend. We walking were talking. my dogs like Jagger. Yeah. <laughs> Moving like Jagger, walking your dogs like Jagger. I don't think you'll find Mick walking his dogs anywhere in the city here anytime soon. No. But he's missing a great experience. Although they know? did cover walking the dog. They back did, in the day. way back in the day. But, I, but um, I remember you saying, you know, people always hold Keith to high regard, like he's the cool stone, and that people kind of look over Mick. But, you know, together is when they do their best material and always has been, and it's, it's just, yeah. you know, it's a sum of its parts. So talk to me about the reasoning. That was the reasoning behind wanting to write a book, wasn't it? I, I felt like he was just, he with Keith, uh, certainly as the um, one of the supporters of this uh, fallacy that... Um, in terms of some comments that he'd he'd made and certainly what he wrote in life and just, you know, never correcting anyone when they say that, you know, he's the heart and soul of the Stones. But it definitely takes two to to make those songs and that chemistry is clearly not there unless they're together. And uh, so I I guess, you know, in that punk rock sort of way of sort of championing the underdog, and it's hard to think of Mick Jagger as an underdog because he's so established. He's a knight. He's probably a billionaire. Yeah. I just wanted to maybe sort of take up the cause and, and see if there was a parody there, if there was balance there, you know? And of course there is. Of course there is. But but I think that in terms of likability, sheer likability, you know, it's all about Keith, right? Like, Mick is just not as likable. He's not as... Keith is like everyone's sort of, you know, rock and roll uncle now that, that what I mean, that's say, why Johnny Depp you know makes yeah. his character for Pirates of the Caribbean right based on him politics it's like who do you want to have a beer with you know it's like what, in terms of, of electability you know it's like that's like a huge figure in terms of, of a, a candidate political candidate it's what, why Mitt Romney is having this trouble now because he feels stiff you know it's like Mick felt sort of stiff um, and I guess I want to sort of tr- see if I could like warm that up a little bit or, or even or just kind of shine a light on it and see yeah. what's really there. Shine a light, no pun intended either <laughs> there. So, hey, and I got to tell you that I interviewed the band uh, for a bigger bang. I did their radio interview, which was really cool because it was on Worldwide. Mm-hmm. And I got the call because I just done the U2 one. For Were they it. together? Yeah, which which they almost never do. Right, I yeah. think it, it actually was, yeah. it was the first time in I think close to 35 years that the four of them did an interview all together. Maybe since the press conferences around the time of of uh, Ronnie Wood joining the band or whatever wow. they were doing at the time. But yeah, here, no, I'm shocked that they were too. Yeah. yeah, isn't this amazing? So I was so grateful I got the opportunity to be the guy when they asked me to do it. So here's the thing. We're going live. We're on top of Radio City Music Hall at Premier Radio Networks. And I get the call that they want me to do it. So I recorded the intro beforehand, but I'm sitting there, and none of them are there. It's five minutes to airtime live in Japan, New Zealand, and the U.S. It's on stations, hundreds of radio stations for a bigger bang. And it was all the current members of the band because you can't count Bill Wyman since he's left the band. So Ronnie gets there first. He's recently out of rehab. So he comes. He's drinking tea. Then Keith walks in next. 
And like literally a minute before we're about to talk, then comes Mick Jagger and then Charlie. Charlie had recently had his surgery with his throat cancer. Right. Um, <clears throat> and all of them were drinking tea except for Keith. And you know what Keith was drinking, which I was, I was like, dude, where's the Jack and Coke? He was drinking Grey Goose vodka and Fanta orange soda. And I went, <laughs> Fanta orange soda? What's up with the taste buds, man? Was he smoking? <laughs> Yeah, he was. He's, he's allowed to. That, he's allowed to anywhere. <laughs> he's yeah. to I was backstage. He, he's got permanent. <laughs> yeah, I was backstage with the the Strokes t- about ten years ago when they were opening for that for the couple of dates on the Forty Licks tour, and they were like warned, like you know, by the the people like don't you can't and they were all smoking at the time. Yeah. Um, don't smoke. You can't smoke around the venue. You can't smoke around the equipment. This is a smoke free event. And then like literally like Keith. They were setting out ashtrays for him, and like yeah. he, he is the exception, and that's kind of like you know, on his own terms, you know, he's and and people look up to that, and I look up to that, you know, yeah. Like I don't, my no, my book was not anti Keith, you know, it was just sort of pro Mick. It was like so celebrate Mick's uh, contributions, and during the interview that I did with all four of them live, you would expect Charlie to be a little slow to respond at times because he's a little of the drier uh-huh. comedy pussy. He just had that operation. Ronnie was funny. Keith was the mo- was was the funniest, but you know what? Mick was a consummate leader in the way and of course Mick always brought the answers back around it was like you know there's an opening and closing to everything their answers and you know what was so also very cool about the interview Mark was the fact that we were taking phone calls emails um People were like talking to the band live, which how many people get the opportunity to do that with the Stones? So it was it was a great great night for me. September twelfth, I'm trying to remember the year. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I should six. Uh, it was no, it was like two thousand four. I think it was two thousand four, two thousand five. Whenever a bigger bang came out, right? And Don was told me that that you know the producer you know from was not was told me that that was a, one of the first times they had all been in the studio together again where they actually recorded a lot of the stuff together where all those albums through the uh through the the 90s and uh you know late 80s and those other things they were almost never in the same room together while they made those what do you what do you think of i was just thinking uh, i looked at the calendar recently and i was like well it's getting really close to that anniversary like are they gonna i mean they, they announced like they're doing a photo book i guess recently yeah you know mick and keith showed up for the uh screening of Exile on Main Street at, at MoMA. Uh-huh. It was somewhere like MoMA. I can't remember exactly where it was. But um, I was at that first viewing of the film, and they came and did a quick introduction and then basically blew out after right. that. And, I mean, it was interesting. It's like Robbie Robertson from the band was there and a bunch of other people came to see it. But um, Do you think they have another go-around in them? I, do, I mean, you, first, you mean a studio album, or are you talking about just a tour? What just, do you think? Just a, some kind of Rolling Stones project I yeah. guess. Yeah. I think that you know I think are they going to just keep keep recycling the classics? Yeah, know? I think they will. Well, you know, that's the thing that I was told by um some girls by some of the band them. members. Mick has this thing where Mick although they dipped a little into the, you know, the deep stuff, Mick wants to satisfy the fans who love the hits. He says we should do the hits this we're touring the tickets cost so much. Let's do that. So that was his reaction that he wants to stick to a lot of hits that people want to hear. And, you know, people write in and say, oh, you know, could you play Straight Cat Blues? Could, you know what I mean? Do Monkey Man. You know, things of that nature. So, but uh, I think the, I think we'll see them again. Absolutely. I mean, McCartney is like 70 and he's, he's you know, and Dylan is, is out. It's like, yeah. I, I guess that's just the new. 70 is the new 60 or 70, 50. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> know, 30. Which I'll take it. I will take it when we get there. Believe me. You're listening to The Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Did you see that Paul McCartney documentary for the love we make? It's the thing about I did the see 9/11. that. Yeah, I did. I watched it on. It was on cable. Yeah. Did yeah. you notice that there was some tension between Mick and, and Paul during that whole thing? Um. Well, I don't. I mean, y- you could feel it because some of the. Dearest, but isn't that like? Doesn't that go back to like? Oh, it goes all the way back. Or whatever. It goes back to I want to be your man and yeah. everything back in that period of time. <laughs> right. You know. And I don't think that'll ever end. Not between guys like that, you know, like right. Mick and Paul. There's no question. Well, supposedly, about it. like Mick got on better with John, I think, or or something. Like they all got on better with John. You know, didn't Keith write in his book about how he sort of only sort of developed a friendship with Paul like later in life? Or yeah, I mean, I don't, who knows? You know, I think sometimes it's all about when guys know that they've written songs that are as great as some of the songs that they've written and how much they've meant to people for such a long period of time. You know, the ego thing sometimes gets into it. You know. But who wouldn't have loved to have seen a super champ with both bands? It would have been interesting to see them all. Well, there are some songs where, the, and then they were all like coked out, or or you know, the, and, and it's like 
they like existed as bootlegs for a reason because they, yeah. they would have been really sort of I guess anticlimactic if you'd actually heard what they were yeah. when, when Lennon was on his sort of lost weekend. Oh yeah, there's those there's those uh, Harry Nielsen yeah. and the Kotex experience <laughs> out there at the Troubadour. Hey, so, but I mean, but listen, I mean, the book though, did did you get any reaction from Jagger or anybody in the Stones camp to the book itself? No, no. I mean, I I always um am um a little embarrassed i guess i don't know i mean like i i sent bowie the bowie book and obviously green day read the green day book um with the jagger book i was just like it, it got like a lot of attention kind of out of the gate and i was just like well should i send him a copy and then i thought well just maybe he'll just know that it's out there and someone will you know show it to him and i, I hope he's read it or or someone has told him you know that that he's been sort of reappreciated you know in a, yeah. in a thoughtful way but I didn't make some gesture this time. And I have done that in the past where it's just like, you know, thank you for inspiring this. And, you know, then you send it over. And yeah. Hope for the best. I've not been sued yet. Yeah. I'm sure he's I'm sure he's aware of the book. You know, before I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but I do want to talk to you. I know we'll do this again, Mark, without a question. But I want to talk to you a little bit about your other side, which is the playwright side, because I remember when you were first moving on, on your place, yeah. doing a narrative for you with characters. We did a thing on stage at a somewhere down there in the East Village. I can't remember exactly what it was. Was it called the Slipper or something like that? What was the name of that? The Slipper Room? Yeah, Slipper Room. We did like... Uh, what did we... What we was, did, was that the one that was based on a Talking Heads title? Because there was one... Let's talk about some... You know, I can't remember what the play was now because it's been so many years. It was like, you know, late 90s, right? Yeah, no, there was a... I think we might have done a preview of it or yeah it was a preview yeah. that's what it was it was a reading of the play right yeah the i did a play because i you know the um the mtv and vh1 shows where they they go they always have this sort of expert where it says writer or journalist underneath them yeah you know? yeah <laughs> it's like when, when i was at spin i was that guy a lot yeah you know? and they, they, you know they're they're sort of they're pretty hysterical because sometimes you get prompted you know it's like would you agree that corn yeah. is you know and it's so of course you do because you know they're looking yeah. a lot of times and I do this too because you see me on a lot of these countdowns yeah. and these these historical yeah. things sometimes you get them prompting you because they're trying to get a narrative yeah. that they want in so there so i thought and i i've i've been doing theater and and off 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 broadway theater in in lower manhattan for for about 15 years and um at that point, that was around 2004 or five. I was starting to get maybe a little fatigue from doing that, from being one of those talking heads. So I thought I would write like a a violent black comedy about one of those sessions that goes off the rails where where the guy gets really pissed off, like don't put those words yeah. in my mouth. Um, <laughs> so that so that I think yeah, and then you read one of those. <laughs> I think I was the narrator, narrator for it. It was funny, wasn't it? Right? No, you did. Now. I remember now. Yeah, it was no, the slipper room, speak. which is my friend's bar on on Orchard and Stanton <laughs> on Lower East Side, and you read the stage direction. Yeah, that's what I did. But um, it, but it was funny. I was yeah. as a narrator. It was it was it was a fun thing to do. But can I just because I know we don't have a lot of time, but yeah. I wanted to bring up with you one of the things that I love that is a common thread through the plays that you write Mark are your references to song titles from things that you love like one is called I Want to Be Adored Stone Roses or Worry Baby which is a play on Don't Worry Baby by right. the Beach Boys uh, Gravity Always Wins which is from um uh, what is that? Uh, is it Fake Plastic Trees? Is that the Radiohead song? Yeah, yeah. and then and then Shyness is Nice, which is a Smiths ask. ask yes. And Your Face is a Mess, which is Rebel Rebel, Rebel speaking Rebel, of Bowie. Right. Sure. And so I see these things. You know, of course, I, I smile when I read them. Right, if I you get them. them, which of course you will. Um, not everyone does, but you, obviously your eye goes right to the lyric and your, you know, super brain <laughs> <laughs> puts it in context. But um you know, if you get them, then then I have you. You know, then then I, I you know I have your attention. And if you don't, you're just then it's like I guess sort of like interesting or cryptic or whatever. But yeah, it's it's just a weird habit I, I've had with the the plays, which actually they're all I've had them all digitized and I've kind of cleaned them up a bit and they're all going up on my website actually because people they, you know the only only a couple have been published and some of the things have been in monologue books and stuff like that, but they have stayed kind of that downtown underground thing you know now is that is the website spitzbooks.com spitzbooks.com and in um in april they're all going to be there for download like I, the whole the full like uh, 13 plays i think people really enjoy them especially the music fans out there and just people in general that i think they'll find I think people should do them in their high school drama classes <laughs> yeah and, i mean they're 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 you know they're a little they're edgy or dirty or whatever but they're not i mean they're all they're, they're all pop yeah you know? 
Now, spitzbooks.com, also on there you blog, and I saw uh, uh, one you did a few days back about Lou Reed's 70th birthday. You saw him. You were walking <laughs> your dogs, probably on Hudson Street, right? Yeah. And um, and you saw Lou going into like a store on 11th Street. And Amazing. Lou can be found about, around the city. And, you look at him and you're just like, well, who's that old guy? And then you're just like, you have that recognition and you're like, oh my God, that's Lou Reed. And it, it happens, like literally I see him a lot because we, I guess we live on the same block or something, but... Um, then you go to, oh, well, that's the man who wrote All Tomorrow's Parties, and that's the man who wrote Street Hassle, and that's the man who wrote, you know, and it's uh, Romeo and Juliet, and like. And Satellite Love. And, and that, but that happens a lot. I mean, that happens in New That's just a New York thing, right? It LA is. Thing where because just, all of us walk everywhere in, yeah. this, in this city. You know? And you have to sort of pretend that you don't, you're not impressed or, or that you, you know, that this person doesn't have some kind of direct influence over how you see the world, you know, through. through um, literally through their music and but lou and as an interview uh subject is is brutal <laughs> I mean, he's about funny it. you know we, he likes me so because we you know we've well you're lucky about, i mean you're, you're you know because he doesn't like most of us and you know it's maybe different for, ju- for straight up journalists yeah i mean he's done 120 minutes and a bunch of other things with me and radio interviews and it's been good but i saw one of the funniest things i saw and i i don't think it was your interview or was it when somebody was asking him about his stocks in Sirius. And no, he, I didn't. That, was that wasn't you. you. I, you know what? I would have remembered if it was you. I didn't think so. He goes, hey, I'm not here to talk about my finances. I'm here to talk yeah. about my radio show. He goes, well, you know, he just he takes no prisoners like the name of one of his double live albums. I love that record. <laughs> That's an insane record. Yeah, because he's just rambling, speeding I just, his I brains just, I out. I fast forward past the music and I just wait for the next, like, banter. It's yeah. like his sort of, what was that Elvis record they put out where it's just his onstage sort of. Yeah ramblings and i think they did one for tom waits um genius that record and you kind of have comedy to... record ever made it's yeah. really hilarious it's better it's as good as a richard pryor comedy album <laughs> it was um, in that period of time we're talking about late 1970s late so street, know, that was a street house yeah yeah um there's more dialogue on the record than there is songs really it's just the dial it's inspired <laughs> i mean he's so um but you know, I did an interview with him for for Uncut, the English magazine, when uh, a couple of years ago when they were revisiting Berlin. Which I, I love that magazine, by the way. There's there's some good, you know, there's Mojo Uncut, Mojo you know, Uncut yeah. and Q are, are the big. Yeah, you know, and then there's Word. You know, there's a bunch of things over there. Um, and it was it was in person, and it was a sit down at this um, place that on West Fourth Street in the, in the village, and he was perfectly nice, and a little intense, and a little prickly, but. For some reason, that I think his guard was up uh, for that Metallica thing because people were just gunning for him. People didn't get it, you know. Yeah. And, and I think he just—I was probably like the fourth interview of the day, and he just—he didn't want to. He just didn't want to do it. He I didn't. I don't. You think though? I, one of the mistakes, and I've heard people say this. People said to me that they think one of the mistakes when it came down to playing that for the press was. They kind of kept that policy of we don't want to we have to play it for you we don't want to give it to you so it leaks because it's you know Metallica related record but yeah. a record that's that unique that's that different people have to have time to digest you know they have to have time with Lulu they, you know what I mean because then they might find something in it that they find that they like that's the problem in general Matt with the business now you know is that you don't have you know once they started bringing us in and by us I mean music journalists into a conference room. And, and I, they do that with me sometimes yeah, too. And just you, play it on on their sound system that's mixed how they want it to be mixed. And there's and they walk away and they leave you there. And you've literally got like a notebook. And then that's the only time you get to hear it. And then you have to interview the person. And then you have to write about the band. I mean, that's kind of when the air came out of the balloon in terms of music journalism because you can't. It's all about that feeling that you're talking about and and walking around with the album and know? having it. I mean, I remember one before I had to do the interview for. Um, all that you can't leave behind for you too. Right. And I was over there doing doing an interview, taping it for my show farmclub.com. I got to Dublin, and they gave it to me, and Bono gave it to me, and I had the I had a disc man, yeah. Um, and I was walking around Dublin, listening to it, getting to actually absorb the record. You need your own space with a with a record like that, not just brought in, you know, played a five song sampling. Yeah, and and I, I'm not saying that I would like phone it in, but like, where is your will to to just kind of connect with the, the music if they're going to start off the relationship that way you know yeah. so it just got like a little it, guess it's the, the technology about is leaking. improving though I think you, they can actually get some secure unleakable sort of stream to you like now. in a Dropbox of yeah. some sort like I, 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 that's kind of like I, I find myself increasingly because I'm 
I do interviews for for Vanity Fair's website now. Yeah, it's kind of the Lou Reed when he hung up on me. That was for Vanity Fair. Yeah, um, <laughs> so I find myself getting emailed stuff a lot and and being able to listen to it in my apartment or or just transferring it to my iPod when I'm walking around. And I find that like the last Bright Eyes album, like like I got to spend some a little bit of time with it and kind of maybe how I felt about it was different than kind of the buzz on it. Yeah, you know, which was maybe a little iffy. Um, I think that that's kind of where how our heroes listen, whether it's Lester Bangs or Nick Kent or or All the John great. Savage or people. I mean, they they took they they got the vinyl and they 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 took it home. I mean, that's kind of how and they it, spent time and they put their head right into it, yeah. right into it, yeah. as opposed to kind of being. I don't, do you think they bring David Frick to like a conference room? Do you think he would like? What would he tell them if they if they suggested that? Right? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, I mean, it's you know you got to remember. I think I feel the same way you do about it in in every way. And, and I just think it comes back purist, to the, par- right? yeah, like, but it's a paranoia of managers and record companies. And, and, and but, yeah. but, but in that Lou Reed Metallica situation, like you and I talked about, you had to hear the record for a while. You just couldn't hear it once. Well, what they it- did, I think, is that they had this like arty farty kind of event in some gallery and they played it like really loud over this kind of white noise of people kibitzing and drinking cocktails and like like that was sort of one of the ways that they played it for people. And I've been to things like that, you know, where they, they, they get all the media in one room and they get them drunk and then they, oh, we're going to play you the album now, you know, and it's like, not- maybe you'll remember one song, yeah, <laughs> you know, um, or you, while people are talking and, and tons, you're always, you know, that there'll be people having conversations around you. How do you really hear it? Right. You know, I mean, I, <laughs> I found when I left spin and just sort of, uh, or a couple of years I was working on the Bowie book and I'd stopped writing as much as I did because I, I just wrote a lot for a long time and I kind of got a little burned out as I started dropping off people's mailing lists and I found myself and then I started writing for Vanity Fair recently over the past like year and a half two years and I started getting stuff sent to me again yeah um, and I guess there was like a turnover there's like attrition in the business and there the, some of the old school publicists still sent me stuff but like some of the new people like I wasn't necessarily on their list and they still say spin when they send yeah. me stuff <laughs> um uh I found myself buying music again. And I think that that kind of was a weird, and I don't know if you have the same experience, like that was like a weird reconnection with, with that. It's good to pay for music every I, once in a while. I like to. Yeah. I do. Like I'll order things online or I'll go to the surviving record stores in New York City, like Rebel Rebel and things right. like that, or Amoeba when you're out in Los Angeles, you know. I always bought vinyl because I, yeah. I, was, I was and still do DJ and, and bars and stuff. But yeah. but just buying, like if you if you heard a new song, no matter what, you know, whether it's a sleigh ball song or something, like just not calling it in, just yeah. like literally hearing it, yeah, in your place or on or your headphones, you know. So it's you just, get spoiled, you get yeah. spoiled, and it's good to pay for concert tickets. It's good to pay for for records if if you want to maintain some kind of some grounding. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I think yeah. so. But, hey, Mark, I want to thank you for coming in today oh, to do yeah, this. This is fun, man. It's I, good to. Good I, I, I had a great time. time. Absolutely. Mark Spitz, everyone, on the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. And check out Mark's website, spitzbooks.com. You can get a hold of some of his books there. Yes. And soon all his plays will be up there as well. And uh, check out his blog. All right. Mark, thanks for coming in, man. Thanks, Matt. This has been the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. For all things music, news, interviews, live events, and more, go to mtvhive.com.